Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Mod Path Chat the official podcast of Modern Pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to a special episode of ModPass Chat. Our Meet the Expert guest today is Dr. Pedro Margani. Dr. Argani has made significant contributions to the field of renal neoplasia, which will be the topic of our conversation today. He has been a member of the WHO Working Group for the Classification of Renal Tumors since 2004. That's 18 years, so coming up on uh, the third uh, edition that you're involved with. Dr. Argani is highly dedicated to education of both medical students and pathology trainees. He has been awarded the Johns Hopkins Pathology House Staff Faculty Teaching Award nine different times. Uh, just uh, for a reference, to put it in context, I spent 12 years at Hopkins. I managed to get it only one time. So they really love uh, Pete's teaching, and, uh, and it's really well-deserved. Pete serves on the editorial board of the American Journal of Surgical Pathology and the International Journal of Surgical Pathology and Advances in Anatomic Path. But most importantly, he's the senior associate editor of Modern Pathology the most important of all journals. Thank you, Pete, for accepting my invitation today. It's my pleasure, George. Great to see you. So uh, let's, so clearly the topic we can, I know you can uh, talk about uh, all renal tumors and your contributions have, have has been immense in that field, but let's focus on uh, the recent editorial in uh, that you and uh, Rohit Mehra wrote in the March, uh, ep- uh, March issue of the journal, uh, accompanying five different manuscripts that touch on the topic. Uh, and it's an amazing collection. I referred our reader uh, to pick up that journal and read all five great manuscripts. Uh, they all revolve on around uh, the findings of TSC alterations, somatic, so to speak, in, in some pink renal tumors. And this has been a difficult topic for a lot of us uh, in practice. So I wanted to, uh, to spend the time with you talking about these pink tumors in the setting of TSC and what, what the implications of that. So take it and run, my friend. Okay. Well, I always like to, you know, 
George, you and I have been around long enough that we kind of remember how these things evolved. And, and sometimes the stories uh, make it make these more understandable and more memorable. So, um, you know, I remember um, when around when I started around 99 or so, um, you know, there was we, we knew that we all know that patients with tuberous sclerosis frequently develop cysts and angiomyolipomas. And then with, you know, the discovery of epithelioid angiomyolipoma, which was, you know, spearheaded by one of our mutual friends, uh, Guido Martignoni, mm-hmm. um, there was a thought that maybe all of these renal uh, epithelial ne- epithelioid neoplasms in patients with tuberous sclerosis might be these epithelioid angiomyolipomas. But um, while they, a lot of them are, certainly there are renal cell carcinomas that arise in patients with tuberous sclerosis. About 4% of patients get them. And uh, two very nice studies uh, in this last decade came out describing and sort of categorizing renal cell carcinomas in patients with tuberous sclerosis. Um, and they sort of break into three main categories, uh, one of which is uh, renal cell carcinomas with clear cells, papillary architecture, and prominent smooth muscle. Um, the other is in one with eosinophilic cytoplasm, a macrocystic type appearance, and then ones that look like the eosinophilic variant of chromophobe carcinoma, uh, what we probably all used to call that. And uh, since those tumors occur in patients with the syndrome, we might expect that we might get those same tumors in the somatic setting arising in patients who now have uh, somatic mutations in the TSC genes or in the mTOR gene, which is, you know, we know is in the same pathway. And that now appears to be, seems to be the case. And I think it's pretty well established. So we now know that eosinophilic solid and cystic renal cell carcinoma, which is described by Carol Tripkoff and Jesse McKinney, um, is the somatic version of the macrocystic eosinophilic variant big pink cell tumor, lots of cysts, basophilic cytoplasmic stippling to the cytoplasm. We know that the uh, renal tumors that have the clear cytoplasm and uh, papillary architecture and smooth muscle, uh, those are the renal cell carcinomas with fibroliomyomatous stroma. Those are the, the somatic counterparts to that um, that have, have now been uh, well described. And then corresponding to the tumors that have that eosinophilic chromophobe appearance, I think are two uh, sporadic tumors that have been described, one of which is uh, now called by the GUPS, the eosinophilic vacuolated tumor, tumor with eosinophilic cells, prominent nucleoli, hyalinized stroma, dense calcifications, um, usually stains with CD117, but not CK7. And then there's the low-grade oncocytic tumor, or LOT, which is the uh, tumor that looks very close to the eosinophilic chromophobe RCC, a little less of the raisinoid appearance of the nuclei, but often has this, uh, what's been described as the boats in a bay appearance, where you have a lot of edema and these small angulated nests of lesional cells. That tumor stains with CK7, but not CD117, unlike eosinophilic variant of chromophobe, which would typically label with both. So I think, uh, and these papers that came out in modern pathology really solidify that there are, that these somatic counterparts have the same mutations in the same genes. And it makes a a really nice story. Um, It's, uh, I think it's, it's gratifying in that it sort of puts all the pieces together. Um, It's, uh, 
there are some issues though that we have to deal with, right? Because for example, we can have tuberous sclerosis mutations as secondary events in, mm -hmm. in clear cell RCC. Um, these tumors that we're talking about appear to be driven by the TSC and therefore we get downstream activation of things like cathepsin K, GPNMB. Um, so that's one issue. And then uh, um, other issues are, you know, are these things completely discrete? Is there some overlap among these? Um, should we group them into a family? Um, so there, there is some debate, I think, among different pathologists about that. Very uh, elegantly put. So, so basically, to summarize for our audience, because not everyone is uh, as savvy in renal tumors as you are. So RCC with fibromyomatous uh, stroma or uh, RCC-FMS, ESC with, uh, and LOT and EVT. These four tumors now, we, we know that they can have somatic uh, alterations in the TSC slash mTOR pathway, uh, which will come into a second, what's the significance of that, uh, akin uh, to, to what the inherited counterpart in TSC syndromes morphology. And this is not new. I mean, this keeps happening in renal tumors. We, we learned from the inherited syndrome, first started with the clear cell carcinoma and DHL uh, patients, and then realized that, that not every RCC is within that context, and they can have somatic alteration where uh, you lose uh, one of the copy of the uh, tumor suppressor gene. Now, so what the, in terms of significant, and you touch upon this because as, as we've discussed previous episode uh, with Dr. Mark, that it seems like the classification of renal tumors is moving toward uh, hopefully one day where there'll be a lot of driver mutation-based or driver alteration-based classification, which will make it a little uh, more consistent. Uh, but uh, we're not there yet, uh, but at least in those lesions, it seems like uh, these alterations, not that they're a prerequisite for, correct me if I'm wrong, for the diagnosis, uh, but uh, may also emphasize, like you're saying, maybe you put them under one umbrella and call them the TSC-driven or TSC pathway renal cell carcinomas, uh, similar to what we do with SDH or FH uh, tumors. But, but there is significance, even as a somatic, even if we keep them as. And, uh, and I was very intrigued when you mentioned uh, in the editorial, uh, how mTOR alteration uh, lead to cells being bigger, which I always love how genetics and morphology uh, coincide. And and really, many of these tumors do have uh, large uh, large cells, uh, which is fascinating to me. But there is therapeutic implications for that, correct? Yeah, and and, and that's um, you know uh, important because while these are you know, basically of these uh, uh, tumors of the, the eosinophilic types, only the ESC has been documented to metastasize. The EVT and the LOT have not. Um, though I would say that even though there is follow-up on those cases, it's not long enough because they're slow growing tumors. And you really, to my mind, need 15 or so year follow-up, 20 to, to be sure that, that these are, are gonna be benign, maybe even more. Um, but yes, you can treat these um, patients with mTOR inhibitors, the rare ones that have metastases. And, you know, we had a, a very a memorable case here that, that kind of led to this, uh, this thinking. We had a patient who was a young patient who had a eosinophilic RCC that had metastasized to her liver. And this was, um, you know, 10 years ago. And um, 
it turned out to be an ESC. And she actually did receive mTOR inhibitors. And um, I, 10 years later, received a call from her uh, medical oncologist saying, should we stop? Because the patient's tumor is actually completely shrunk. Um, wow. So these, these, and you think about it, you know, metastatic renal cell to the liver, you're not expecting the patient to be around usually 10 mm-hmm. years later. Um, so there is implications there. The other implication is um, I've seen some cases, particularly in children, where they have um, bilateral tumors. And it's kind of, it reminds me almost of this, the situation with Wilms tumor, where when you have bilateral tumors or nephroblastomatosis, what you really want to be able to do is shrink the tumors beforehand and then do sort of nephron sparing surgery so you don't end up putting the patient on dialysis. Um, we've seen a, a, at least one case where on a small biopsy, we we're able to diagnose one of these, this family of tumor, an ESC, in fact, and they uh, were able to give the patient an mTOR inhibitor and shrink all of the rest of their tumors so that the patient actually uh, didn't need to have um, a significant surgery afterwards. So there's potential there in pe- people who have bilateral disease to do nephron sparing surgery with preoperative mTOR inhibitor. Excellent. Uh, so for, for our audience uh, is, you know, we all struggle with this and the classification of renal, uh, as I mentioned, I got uh, Holger Mock's uh, view on this, but I would love to, to see your practical approach uh, is every day we're faced with tumors and now we know everything can look like everything else. Uh, there is no, they're not uh, so well categorized uh, as they used to be based on morphology. And we find ourselves either ordering uh, a lot of immunos or uh, doing a lot of, you know, uh, molecular testing. Uh, how, how do you approach it on a day-to-day basis when you get a, a pink tumor? Uh, and if you can share uh, and help, especially the younger audience, how to the best way practically to approach it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just, just in general, I would say I do most of my renal tumors, my clear cells just on the H and E. I think that's totally legitimate and, um, you know, papillary ICCs. Um, but the, the pink cell tumors, I think have a broader differential because they can overlap a lot. So, I mean, the way I go through it is I, you know, my first thing is, is it even epithelial? Because I have a lot of respect for what epithelial angiomyolipoma can look like. Um, then I go and and see if it meets criteria for oncocytoma, which is, you know, something that we can call benign with the round nuclei, nested architecture, diamondous stroma. And then, you know, you look at, I look at other things, clinical history, you know, is it patient on dialysis where I'm going to start thinking about acquired cystic disease, RCC. Um, but then I think of when I'm, those things are eliminated, then I go into my, my differential of things that can look a lot alike. So I think about eosinophilic chromophobe. I think about these tuberous sclerosis associated tumors, the, the ESC, the hot or the EVT and the lot, um, the TFEB translocation tumors, I've been shocked uh, having seen a lot of them. I've seen ones that look very much like oncocytoma on core biopsy, and I could easily have been fooled by. And then um, fumarate hydratase and uh, SDH, uh, succinate dehydrogenase deficient tumors, you know, while they have a classic morphology, there's ones that can look like oncocytoma in from both of those. Um, so I would uh, think about those stains. 
And then what I'm, I truly don't know, I have a lot of respect for ALK because ALK tumors can look like almost anything. And if I really don't know, I might throw on an ALK. I would say most of the time though, like when I, I get a tumor, I go based on the morphology. If it, if it really looks like a uh, low-grade oncocytic tumor or an ESC, I might just do a few stains, you know, like a CK20, a CK7, a, a kit, and a cathepsin. And that, that should be all. If the morphology fits and my immunos fit, I'm fine with that. I wouldn't go and do molecular. Um, in contrast, if there is a patient who has uh, either a disease that they can't resect or they happen to have metastatic, they're a rare patient with metastatic disease, um, even if I, I am pretty sure of the diagnosis on morphology, I might actually push to do the molecular because I want to give them that therapeutic option of, of using an mTOR inhibitor. And I'm not sure uro all uh, urologic oncologists are, um, are up on this or are thinking about this. So I try to put it in their head by actually seeing if we can get the stain, get the molecular ordered and give them a target. Wonderful. Very, very helpful. So, uh, which which bring us to you. You also that was mentioned in the editorial and the closing remarks that uh, right now the NCCN recommendations. If you're a young patient with a renal tumor, forty six, uh, I think is the, the cutoff they used. Uh, and I've been in my practice also recommending that because not everyone is as savvy, and I try to uh, mention the possibility of inherited mm -hmm. syndromes. And in the past, we started doing that with DHD and uh, and uh, and SDH, like you mentioned, uh, bring the attention that this could be a, a familial syndrome. Uh, but uh, 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 so now you guys mention in, in the editorial. These tumors that we just talked about today, the TSC spectrum, probably also uh, should be added because while they were talking that they can be somatic, they, they also can be genetic. You want to say, so have you, have you started mentioning that if, if they're bilateral or multifocal? Yeah, I think if there's more than one, and if, particularly if you see angiomyolipomas in the background on a careful exam, I think often looking at the non-neoplastic kidney, you can find small angiomyolipomas that might be a clue. Um, yeah, so I do I do mention it. I mean, I, I just put it in their heads that this could be uh, syndrome related, and then they can decide um, if they want to pursue uh, germline testing. Wonderful. Well, uh, this has uh, been uh, enjoyable and uh, very informative. And uh, as uh, I, I want to say, you're uh, you're the first uh, uh, guest that makes it twice to our podcast. And uh, there is a reason behind that, because your original podcast is the most downloaded among all our this is our 46 episode. So thank you uh, for coming again. And uh, I'm sure our audience uh, will learn a lot uh, from listening to this. And I congratulate you and, uh, on, on all the great things you've done to the field and uh, will continue to do. Thank you, George. It's great to see you. And thank you again for the invitation. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of Modern Pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.